Welcome to the podcast that puts a finger on the pulse of medicine and technology. On this show, you'll hear from investors, industry executives, and healthcare providers on the science and business of medicine. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib, and this is the State of MedTech. What's going on, everybody? So this episode is actually a very interesting one, um, mainly because uh, capital sales uh, is a very sophisticated and interesting part of the medical device and med tech industry. But it's an area that a lot of people, you know, don't know about unless you're in it. And then if you want to learn about it, there's really not much information out there. And so for me, I, I wanted to use this podcast as a way to bring new insights to people and, you know, create content that hasn't been created. So we're going to kick that off with this capital sales episode with my good friend and mentor, Ken Husted. But real quick, just to kind of define it, what is capital equipment? Well, capital equipment is best defined as something as, I would say, expensive physical devices that help generate income for a hospital. Um, hospitals define a price mark at which a piece of equipment essentially becomes, quote unquote, capital for them. And sometimes these uh, hospitals, what they'll do is uh, they'll bundle lower priced equipment together to meet that price mark, right? That's why a lot of large strategics like, let's say, Medtronic will acquire a robotics company. So that way they can bundle capital equipment with something that is going to create like more recurring revenue long term for them, like, let's say, implants or disposables. Now, capital equipment may vary in size, uh, but it can also can be durable, um, but their life can depreciate over time, just like you know owning a car. So both standalone equipment and supplementary equipment like software are still actually considered capital. Some examples of this would be like um, uh, robotics is one, navigation, um, drills, right? Uh, medication management pumps, um, even some syringe pumps to some extent, right? You know, the dollar mark is really a, a wide range, but for me, I like to define capital equipment as anything that costs about $5,000 or more per unit is probably capital, right? And the one important thing to keep in mind about capital equipment is that it's important for a hospital because it can produce additional revenue for the organization, right? Specifically, if you look at, let's say, robotics and you're a patient and you're going to get an elective surgery, you might choose to go and get your procedure done at a hospital that has, let's say, a robotic system, right? And you might even pay cash for that, knowing that you're getting um, a really uh, high quality procedure done, okay? Now, when it comes to capital equipment, there's not a whole lot of people out there who have just done it for so long and done it in so many different uh, capacities. And so that's why I wanted to kick off with somebody like Ken Houston. So Ken and I worked at Mazor, Mazor, at Mazor Robotics, which is the world's first robotic spine company. Ken was uh, the VP of the West region. Um, his career has really been marked by two things, really brand new, first of its kind technology that's extremely expensive and engineering new markets. Um, so he was part of the early class at Intuitive Surgical. He was there from 2001 to 2008, which if you've listened to this uh, podcast, you know that I always say that if you find somebody who was at Intuitive Surgical during the 2000s and lasted more than a year, they're probably really good at what they do. So Ken spent time there. He was also at Hanson Medical. That's another robotics company. Stereotaxis. Again, uh, he was at Mazor Robotics. Uh, and most recently, he was at Pacemate, which is a software company. And the reason why I mention all this is that not only has Ken sold capital equipment um, 
at different levels, but he sold it into different specialties. He's done it in the uh, GI and, or I'm not sorry, GI, <laughs> gynecology and urology space. He's done it in, in spine surgery. He's done it in the cardiac space. And so it's really rare to find somebody who's done both capital equipment and then done it in different specialties. And so I wanted to bring Ken on to talk about the capital sales process and what it means to essentially streamline and perfect that process. Now, before we get started, I wanted to announce a really exciting uh, new live show that I'm going to launch. Actually, I have to give credit. Uh, Ken, Ken actually talked to me about doing case studies as, as, as uh, deal reps um, on the show. A deal rep is essentially uh, what we used to do at Missouri Robotics. It started uh, probably at Intuitive Surgical or even U.S. Surgical for that matter, where the whole sales team would get together and every person one by one would go up, present their deals, and they would get their deals ripped. It's a very valuable experience because you pretty much lay out the cards on you know, what your, what your deal is about. Do you actually have the pieces to make it successful? But not a lot of organizations do that. And so Ken suggested doing um, episodes where we, let's say, review deals as cases. So I took it further because I, I really want to create a media company that does very much edutainment, education and entertainment, kind of like ESPN. And so I'm going to start a new show uh, on LinkedIn called Deal Rip Live. And it's exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to allow capital sales people and reps to submit their deals anonymously, right? And I'm going to invite uh, people like Ken Husted and, and other executive leaders from the capital sales space to review the deals live in front of a live audience and do a deal rep. So if you're interested in checking that out, check the show notes below or go to dealrip.com, submit your deal, and you might be one of the first uh, people who we pick. And again, you will be anonymous. We won't mention your name or your company or even allude to what you sell, but we'll de-identify the, the deal and you'll have some of the greatest uh, sales leaders alive today rip your deal apart and help you get it across the finish line to close contracts. So with that being said, go to dealrip.com, submit your deal there. And now let's get to the show. What's going on, everybody? I am your host and head of state, Omar M. Khatib, with another great episode of the State of MedTech. I'm very happy and honored to be joined by somebody who um, I was fortunate enough to start my career uh, career with and and get mentored by uh, someone who I have a tremendous amount of respect and who I'm very fortunate is carving out a little time to come on and talk about a topic that, to be honest with you, I can't seem to find any podcasts or even blogs on it, which is the importance and, and the uh, right approach to the capital sales process. And that's uh, my good friend and mentor, Ken Houston. Ken, thanks for joining. How are you doing today? doing great, Omar. How about yourself? And uh, welcome, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Ken's, Ken's joining us. You know, see, I'm in SoCal, but I, I come from where Ken is currently located, the great state of Texas. So, Ken, thanks for uh, for carving out some time. And, um, you know, I want to share I want to share a little bit about um, how you and I know each other. But first, you know, if you could Give us a little background on Ken Houston. Like, where's Ken? Where are you from? You know, how did you get your career started? And, um, you know, what what your story is? Yeah. So let me see if I can give you like a five minute recap because I'm really kind of 
got into men devising in particular capital selling through a weird pathway. So uh, I'm originally from Pensacola, Florida, live in San, San Antonio, Texas now, and have been for, you know, 20 plus years, but, um, went, uh, went off at school and originally wanted to be an astronaut. And so finally figured out that wasn't going to happen. Uh, quite tall to be an astronaut, to be honest with you, but, um, <clears throat> went and ended up majoring in math and physics and uh, got out of school and realized I did not want to spend the rest of my life doing problems at a wind tunnel. And so actually my first foray really sort of somewhat into med device was a buddy of mine that was in computer science and I got together and we actually developed a uh, software program and copyrighted in nuclear medicine. And we end up end up licensing, excuse me, that to a company called uh, Metaphysics, which which was at the time a subsidiary of Roche Laboratories, and they used it to um, it was used to calibrate, automate things that they were doing manually in terms of uh, figuring out the dosage amounts for patients coming to get uh, nuclear medicine scans and that sort of thing, and then also doing the health physics part of calibrating equipment. So that's when I knew I, I kind of really liked the, uh, the med field, getting in and going through that experience. And it really kind of worked from there and, and stayed in um, med device, went to a big company by the name of Hillrom, uh, straight commission. That's where you really, really learn how to sell capital. Things have changed yeah. over the years, but, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, nobody has to wake you up to get out of bed. I mean, we were fortunate that, Hillrom had a great brand, but it was still very difficult and, and a great learning ground for me. And then uh, ended up going um, to um, to Intuitive Surgical. I was one of the original um, commercial hires at Intuitive Surgical in late 2000, early 2001. I want to say that. I was there for almost nine years, eight and a half, nine years. And then at that point realized I love the startup aspect and it's very difficult, but it was very rewarding and challenging and uh, spent some time at Stereo Taxes. Um, then of course, Omar, you and I met at, at Missouri Robotics, which was very, uh, um, a, another big challenge that was kind of creating a space. And, uh, and yeah, recent, most recently spent some time at, uh, in the digital healthcare space at, at PaceMate. Fantastic. Cardiac, cardiac monitor. And, uh, and, you know, what's interesting about your background, Ken, that's why I was excited to talk to you, is that, you know, in our industry, what um, a lot of people have pointed out and noticed, especially when they start out, is that usually when you start in one specific area, let's say orthopedics, you, know, you end up hanging out there, you know, and just jumping from company to company. And a lot of times it's like technology, to, to, you know, technology. But for you and your career, it's it's very rare to see somebody having spent not only in like radically different technologies, like robotics, AI, software, but then completely different specialties, you know, intuitive being soft tissue surgery, you know, uh, Mazor being neurosurgery and spine surgery, then Pacemate, which is in the cardiac space. So you have this sort of rare background where you've touched on a lot of different specialties in a lot of different areas. Uh, you know, before we talk about the capital sales process, you know, I have to ask, especially for the younger listeners, because they're going to, they're going to make sure that I ask this question, but you know, you were at intuitive in the early two thousands when it was like, those are the dog years. Those are the Roman gladiators of intuitive. And I tell people all the time, that was a time where 
you know, you, you joined intuitive as a salesperson training was, I think 30 to 45 days. So you're about a third of the way to the quarter. Then you have two months to hit your number. If you don't hit your number, you're just out. It's brutal. Can you share some like, you know, war stories from back, back in those times? Yeah, so those that may be familiar with it, I, mean, I remember going uh, when I first interviewed at Intuitive uh, with a gentleman by the name of Jerry McNamara, literally got there and had to wait for a uh, cadaver to go out of the front door so I could squeeze in to get into the into the office. So to put things in, in perspective, I mean, if anybody knows Intuitive's campus now, it's just it's gargantuan. But uh, got inside and there were literally folding tables and folding chairs um, at Intuitive at, at that time. And uh, literally sat down, took a test drive on the, what was then prototypical, pretty much robot that they had. And it just, it wowed me with my, you know, kind of combination of, uh, of math and physics and, and, you know, looking at the future. And you guys have to keep in mind, I had never been, in an OR in my life when I went to Intuitive, which that kind of puts everything in perspective. So it was really, it was ground zero. And so, um, yeah, like you said, we used to joke on Mark, it was the, the Janet Jackson company for those that are old enough to remember, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, what was, what was, I guess, um, you know, I feel like intuitive, kind of like if you're into college football, you can um, look at a coaching tree like and see a lot of people who had served time under Nick Saban at Alabama, and 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 you know it kind of makes sense in terms of their styles and everything. What were some things that you learned and made you who you are today, uh, coming out of intuitive? A oh, great question. It, it, it was truly about people, and you know I'm going to name a few. Um, because they may be uh, listening in at, at some point, and, and I'm going to forget a few. I mean, it was just, you know, in those days, there were, you know, probably, I think, five or ten of us. You know, obviously, one was Chris Sales, who you know very well. Um, you know, big impact. Um, Rich Walsh was another one. Jim Alexi. Um, you know, there was just a combination. Of the people in my report line. I mean, I think you always learn from those people as well. Kim Black, um, you know, uh, comes to mind. Several others that, you know, just make an influence. And you get this kind of unique experience because there's no playbook. We literally had to come together as a team and as a business and kind of create a playbook because there was not a robotic surgical space at the time. And so that made it very interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. And it's, you know, so much, um, there's so much that people are learning today when it comes to strategy and sales and business development that really maps back to a lot of the foundational things that were started at intuitive and made intuitive what they are today. Um, so with that being said, cause I feel like I, I can ask you questions for hours just on, on the intuitive, uh, time intuitive, and I'll probably have you back to talk about that, but let's kind of dive into the topic for today, which is the capital sales process. Um, it's it's extremely complicated. It's it's only gotten gotten more complicated in the last like five or ten years, um, but it's a bit big topic. So I kind of want to you know put it to you, which is where where's the best place to start to, in terms of understanding the capital sales process? So 
Yeah, great question. So I'm going to go high level with this one. And, and you, you've mentioned it, I think, and I've always said this, and this is what I've learned, is let's start here. In capital equipment, especially in, in that device, you're paid to be paranoid, right? Is that, so let's set that as a sort of a, a tone in, in what we're going to, you know, kind of get into. If you kind of take that mentality, I'm paid to be paranoid, then you're going to get to a state that, that, you know, I've learned over the years that it's not what you think, it's what you know. And so go into it with that mentality because there's a lot of times you can ask somebody, well, you know, who's the, um, who signs the contract? Let's use that as an example. Well, I think it's Nancy, but you said the word think, right? So you don't know. So my point is, is this in capital sales, if you're, if you really go into it, like I'm paid to be paranoid, I think that is really transcendent from really generation to, to generation to where we are now in with that committees and things like that. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. And even, um, you know, the, the great, uh, Andy Grove, who's the, uh, uh, president over at Intel, um, you know, led them out of the, the, um, the memory space and made them who they are today. Um, he wrote an entire book called only the paranoid survive. And that was very much exactly what he's talking about. Do you feel like a lot of the capital salespeople today can, are not paranoid enough? I do. I think, um, well, I say that there's obviously a lot of really, really good capital sales, but I think that the, one of the connections for me is that needs to take place is typically it's not just a pure capital sale. There's usually a razor blade behind the razor, right? And so if you set up the capital, you know, correctly and do that right, and then the razor blade gets used in that model, then that just perpetuates your business. And so I think that needs to be realized. Um, it sounds obvious, but trust me, I've been through a few situations where that's a big struggle. And mm. if that makes sense, because, uh, you know, utilization, make no mistake, sells capital. Oh, a hundred percent. And I want to dive, I want to dig deeper into that because it's, this is a very, it's a simple concept, but it's not easy to do, which is the importance of, you know, so for the, for the listeners who are new to capital sales, you know, you mentioned razor, razor blade model, which essentially if we use like a robotic system, the robot is essentially the razor, right? You sell that into a hospital. That's really only part of the success. The real part of the success, not only for that account, but their whole market that, that, that you're in is the razor blades you sell, such as the disposables. And that maps back to how often is this thing being used? Is it being used a hundred percent of the time for the indications that it, it, it has or only 50% of the time? Why is that such an important thing, Ken? Well, it per per perpetuates the business model. I mean, I mean, I go back to people ask me all the time, you know, what are some of the lessons learned? I mean, I, I go back to the intuitive days. There was a huge pivot and intuitive. The big joke was, you know, we aim for the heart and hit the prostate. Um, and the reason being that, you know, we thought the Lima to LAD beating heart surgery was going to be the, you know, the gold standard and ended up, uh, oh, I forgot to mention Scott Finger. I've got to bring Scott into this because. Oh, uh, Scott, this, Scott's a great guy. Yeah, I think this was his brainchild and intuitive and, and with gynecology and, and, you know, had a big part in in urology and bringing that 
forth from a field standpoint, that is. And it was, uh, you know, management accepted it and we kind of went in that direction. But that was key because then all of a sudden, um, instead of having what I consider a, a lot of boat anchors out there, when we were getting started, that got the utilization train, you know, going for intuitive. Yeah, and that's a big part that people don't realize because, you know, there was a time where Intuitive was in the early 2000s struggling. I think the stock was like four or five bucks. It's, it's really, really struggling. And so the one slip, it was, yeah. And so the focus was, was cardiac surgery, but then the pivot was towards urology and, and really owning the billion dollar uh, uh, procedure that made Intuitive, which is radical prostatectomy. What, yep. what was you know, in a nutshell, like, how did that decision end up happening? Because cardiac surgery, there's a lot of money in it. It's very sexy and everything. It's a big radical pivot. Like, how did that happen? I, I think environmentally, if you look at the market at that time, there was, um, you know, as opposed to being a, a technology looking for a procedure, um, the radical prostatectomy was a procedure that, that needed a technology because only 2% of of all urologists at the time, Omar, you know, could really reproduce a radical prostatectomy. And so when you think about that, I mean, it's a very tight space. It's a very bloody procedure. There's, you know, a lot going on. The, the, the things that the robot could do and accomplish um, fit very well into that space. And so, you know, there was a big market that needed a, a of problem solved because there were a lot of open prostatectomies that were being done, which I don't know how much your audience knows about that particular procedure, but you know, it's cancer, it's continence and it's sexual function, which are very, you know, very important to, to men. And, uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a huge issue. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like this is this is a topic that like a lot of companies miss on, which is really thinking about the importance of the utilization of the technology. Let me give you a scenario, and I'm wondering in your mind, like how you would guide something like this. There, there's going to be a a new territory manager or capital sales uh, person listening to this. If they're dropped in some 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 market, let's say they they, they have like three or four states. There's not a single state in their market that, or, or hospital that has a technology. How do they go about starting a capital sales process in terms of figuring out where their sales activities are going to be spent? Because you can't go everywhere. You can't do it all, right? And you have one quarter. What, what's your advice to them? Where do, you, where do you start? I would start here just like you do in any business model. I mean, think about the company that you went to work for and then dropped you into that territory. They have what they consider a you know, uh, total available market, right? TAM, uh, for those that may not be familiar with that term. So you, first you figure out your TAM in your territory and, and, you know, in your geography. And then I would take the TAM and, you know, that's going to determine what your total opportunity is. But I would gear down because what, what I've found in, in recent years is that if you try to sell, especially something disruptive, um, to the wrong crowd, that can get you in trouble. So you, you really have to dig deeper and find out, okay, this is my total available market, but who is, who would be good for my business to perpetuate our business in my geography, in my franchise, if you will. Right? 
And so you determine those, and then I would be relentless at targeting those individuals to get going. Mm-hmm. And then th- that would be, so I'll stop there because that's kind of, that's a big statement, but that's a lot of work. So what, we're, what we've talked about so far is develop your TAM, determine what your market opportunity is, then to, uh, try to develop, um, I guess maybe the mo- more current word now is a persona for, you know, who is likely to be good for your business and your franchise. Mm. Let me let me uh, uh, go deeper on that. I to- I completely agree, and I think this is an area. Again, I I sales is definitely a, all sales is a process. It's not like a singular event, and I think a lot of times salespeople they just kind of have a shotgun approach without really thinking like, okay, if I only got a limited amount of time and a limited amount of shots, where am I going to shoot my shot? Right versus just going after everything. You mentioned about really figuring out which opportunity is going to perpetuate the technology, obviously drive that utilization. I have some ideas tactically about where I would start, but I'm wondering for you, where, where do you start? How do you figure that out in terms of not only the hospital, but more, just as important, if not more importantly, the user? You know, what, what kind of things do you, do, you, do you use? Well, today I think you have all kinds of tools, you know, associated with it. You can see what kind of other technologies they've, purchased in the past, have they been, you know, where are they on the adoption scale, right? So, you know, when I talk about the persona, so, you know, what would make sense? Where's the the hospital on the adoption scale? Have they been, mm. you know, are they early adopters? Are they, um, are they innovators, early adopters, you know? Uh, Why is that important? Everyone, we're going to take a quick commercial break. If you're in medical sales, you don't want to skip this. So if you are a sales rep that's struggling to grow pipeline and hit quota, you're going to want to listen to this. Or are you a sales leader? Maybe you're frustrated because your team just can't seem to get any traction at all. And, you know, you're you're at the end, end, of, end of the line. You don't know what to do. So if that's the case, listen closely. I'm going to share a secret to not only solving this problem, but how you could get results at a scale you never thought was possible. So during the pandemic, I was in the exact same position. I was just like you. I was at a med tech company. We were selling capital equipment. We had a lot of problems getting access to hospitals. And, you know, we're a small company. We had just ended our partnership with the world's largest privately held um, med device company. Um, But the problem was that we only had four salespeople and we were also running out of money. And then the hospital shut down right in April because of COVID. Um, This really was the kiss of death. Uh, But with the support of my CEO at the time, I was allowed to try my digital medical sales strategy, right? And so essentially for about 30 minutes a day, I was the head of marketing back then. 30 minutes a day, I essentially used LinkedIn and a few other digital channels and strategies to try and get traction. So what were the results? In 60 days... 60 days, that's right, that's only two months, I was able to put 35 deals in the pipeline of a variety of different hospitals. Big hospitals such as, uh, you know, uh, University of Kansas or UCSF or Cleveland Clinic, right, and smaller regional hospitals, HCA facilities, etc. Um, and this was done, again, while we we're still, uh, while I was still managing the marketing department. So you can only imagine what my results could have been if I focused on that 100%. Right. So what exactly did I do? Well, 
I knew that physicians and hospital administrators were using channels such as LinkedIn. Um, and so I went to the channels that they were already on, found ways to connect with them, engage them. And then through email, messenger, and a few other channels, I was able to get their attention. I was able to persuade them into virtual demos and then move them forward, right? The results were remarkable. So since then, I started actually my own online training program called the Medical Sales Network Effects Program. It's an online course and the results that people are getting are really amazing and I just had to share a couple. So Gaida, who uh, works with spine surgeons, uh, made this post and said, hey guys, wanted to share a big win for me this past weekend. I went to a networking event not knowing who I was going to meet. To my surprise, I was approached by a spine surgeon who's been watching my content on LinkedIn and asked if I could show him my portfolio. I have a meeting with him next week. I'm really excited and I can't believe I'm getting the results. Thanks to Omar and the Medical Sales Network Effects Program, uh, I've been motivated to really stay consistent in terms of putting out content and using LinkedIn. Another person, so if, for those of you who know the MAD device rep, the MAD device rep is actually a capital sales rep, right? So the MAD device rep um, shares uh, this great story where he says, uh, hey guys, wanted to share this win from earlier in the week. I had a meeting with a surgeon to discuss a new complex product and was reminded about the power of using LinkedIn in the conversation. I referenced some LinkedIn posts related to this product category from several well-known surgeons during the conversation, and this got the surgeon's attention. I was instantly able to build more credibility for both myself and the product using the information from this national peer group. Turns out, the surgeon I was trying to sell to follows those same surgeons on LinkedIn and couldn't believe that I did too. I now have a trial on the books along with more trust from that surgeon. These tactics I learned from the Medical Sales Network Effects Program work just as well in person as they do on LinkedIn. And those, my friends, are just two of many great testimonials and I want you to be the next one. So if you're interested to learn more for yourself as a salesperson, or maybe you're a sales leader looking to level up your team, check the show notes below for a link to book time with me for a quick consult and to learn how my program can help you persuade at scale and drive product adoption in a way you've never seen before. So with that being said, let's get back to the episode. Because you have to sell to them differently. Mm. I think innovators, you know, they're innovators, they're bleeding edge, they're likely to get on board, maybe you get started there. But the thing is, if you if you don't get that utilization going, it never skips over to the next step, which is, you know, an early adopter, which in my opinion, like you get the innovators, the early adopters are, are much more difficult to sell to. I know, I completely agree. And I think, again, when I started my career early at Missouri, I mean, you, Chris Sells, and Prentice and Tim Morawski all, you know, had referenced and talked about uh, Jeff Moore's Crossing the Chasm, who, by the way, is was a guest on my, my podcast. I haven't published this episode yet, but I need to publish that soon. Um, but I recommend that to, that book for every capital salesperson, because you're absolutely right, Ken. The, the difference between, let's say, a bleeding edge innovator and an early adopter is very, very different. And objectively thinking through who you're selling to is important because we saw it in Missouri. I'm sure you've seen it at so many different companies. Salesperson might get lucky and they sell to a certain hospital, a certain clinical champion who in reality is, is not even an early adopter. Maybe they're like a, a, a early majority, 
And then they are just a, a pain to deal with. You can never make them happy. And then utilization gets killed. Would you agree with that statement? hundred percent agree. I mean, you, you've just, you've got to get, get it down and, and just say, you know, who in my geography, you talked about like parachuting someone in, who in my geography is going to get my value, right? Who's going to understand my value? And that's, I think, where you have to start. You're not always going to get it right, by the way, but yeah. if you have that mentality, you're going to be in a good place to get going and be successful. Do you feel like the best capital salespeople, um, aside from doing this, um, when they present, when when you and uh, and the deal the deal rips that I sat in at Missouri were just historic. I wish I recorded them or you know something. I really wish I did. But do you feel like the best salespeople not only, you know, I I feel like it doesn't take a lot of sophistication to say, oh, we're going to sell to you know Johns Hopkins or or Mass General. Like it, it's kind of obvious. Do you feel like the best salespeople are able to not only pick the right hospitals based on data, economic data? but develop a psychological profiling of the surgeon say, here's why we're going to go after this surgeon. Like, do you feel like that's, that's an important thing to do in a deal rep? Absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, past history of the surgeon, what they've purchased in the past, uh, what are they publishing? Um, you know, can kind of give you an indication. And now with all the information that we have available, you know, via, I don't know, you name the source, you, you know them better than I do. The LinkedIn's and the, you know, um, the different social media channels that are, you know, around, you can really kind of get a sense of, you know, what they're putting out there to, to validate, um, you know, maybe that they would be receptive of your value. Oh, 100%. And I think, you know, I mean, back when we were at Missouri, like, you know, physicians were not utilizing social media as much as they are today, especially like things like LinkedIn, where they're literally posting cases. But I think that's such an important thing you point out. And um, you, you touched on something that's always been there, but I, I've unfortunately noticed that a lot of, there's a lot of lacking discipline on salespeople's sides where they don't, they don't go and read the last three to five publications that a doctor has. I mean, whether it was with you or Chris Sells or Tim or Chris Prentice or Tim Rowski, anytime I had to talk about a surgeon or anybody on our team did, you guys would always ask us, well, what were the last things they published? I think Sells even when he would do um, ride-alongs, he used to ask for an agenda to be pr printed out, including the last, I think, three publications, right? Um, I think it's incredibly, it's incredibly important. Now here, I'm gonna throw a little bit of a curveball here. Do you feel that sometimes when you look at a pattern of a surgeon, let's say, and let's say they're really good at adopting certain technologies, right? And they, they have this history. Do you feel like sometimes you can fool yourself to thinking that somebody's going to be a great innovator for your product when in reality they might be sort of later adopter? Like just because somebody was an innovator or early adopter for something else, that does not mean it's going to translate one-to-one -one directly to your technology. Do, do you agree with that? I mean, I, I, I always I always have this issue, and I, I can't figure it, seem to figure it out. I do. It's, you know, the correlation is hard to, to really make, a, a, you know, especially specific correlation. Because, you know, when you really drill down, there's, to your point, there might be somebody that, you know, is an innovator with one technology because that might be, something they were interested in, in, in 
you know, when they went through school or, or what have you, right? But then they get to this and, um, and not so much. Well, you know, again, like we talked about, um, you can miss a few of those, but getting that wrong a lot is, uh, you know, is not a good thing because like I said, mm-hmm. selling to an innovator, early adopter, or, you know, or two, in my mind, totally different things because you might think he innovated here, but, or, or she, and then you get with your technology and they're more of a type of persona that needs something more baked, more perfect. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes complete sense. And I think, you know, again, like it's, it's hard to, uh, um, show this, but I think the other thing that people haven't taken into account, I think this approach of looking at past publications, past behaviors are really important. I think the other thing that we forget about is how complicated the buyer's journey is. I mean, you having spent time in the software side, no, you know, definitely have seen this. But I think that you can have somebody who's, let's say, 100% to a T, pure innovator. They match all the psychological uh, indications of that. But because of the environment, hospital, let's say, gets a new CEO, budget's a little bit tighter, right? They're getting more pressure on certain things that sometimes the environment forces that innovator to end up adopting a later a, a later phase of the adoption curve, not because that's their behavior, but just because of their environment. You know, yeah. Think think about it. So the trend has been so you have m- many, many, and it's going to continue. I think this way, um, more practices that are being you know purchased by hospitals, and they they in some cases do a, a partnership of sorts, and in other cases they outright become employees of the hospital. That can be a plus and a minus, um, but in many cases that can slow down. A sale cycle, and absolutely. And then in, in another case, just to, not to deviate, but um, then then you tie your your wagon to a certain physician that you think is a clinical champion. The hospital owns the practice. You um, many people don't go and talk to the CEO and administration and, and find out. You know, let, let me be blunt on this: that you go in and you find out through administration that you know we could care less if that person, you know, even step foot again in our OR. And that's another huge mistake. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, that's, that's a good segue to, to another, another question I have. So imagine, you know, you, you know, you segment your territory, you, you look at, uh, you know, procedure volume, uh, uh, things like, you know, other competitive technologies in that hospital, the surgeons, everything, you know, you find the right, right surgeon, right? And, and I'm, I'm going to use surgeons because that's the world that we, we, we come from. It's a little bit more tangible. Um, I, I, when is it appropriate, do you feel, for a salesperson to do a, let's say, you know, now we're using Zoom a lot. So they do their first meeting with a doctor. This is before they go to a lab and everything. It's just to have a conversation to maybe do a short presentation of the technology. I sometimes feel that salespeople get too lazy and they, they try and tap a, a, a key opinion leader, a KOL of the companies to always be on these calls because they feel like having that other KOL is going to help. Do you, do you feel like, when do you feel like it's appropriate to play that card? Uh, 
So when is it appropriate? I mean, I think the first demo you should be able to do and get through to, you know, gauge interest. And then as things progress, especially in today's environment, then I would engage maybe a, a KOL and, you know, see, because you got to remember, you're putting a great deal of resources, not just for a demo, that's your time and your time's worth a lot. You have to get in that mentality. But then to go to that next step, I think, um, uh, to get them to a lab, let's say, I mean, you're, that's a commitment of resources on the part of the company. So there needs to be a contract that that happens to to make sure that there's an expectation set that this isn't a sitting a vacation. Ah, um, uh, you touched on a very sensitive topic for me because I I can't yeah. tell you how many different times when I was a marketing manager in Missouri and we paid a lot of money through these labs and a surgeon shows up from a salesperson. And it is blatantly obvious this surgeon either has no political capital into the product, has no influence of the hospital, literally just is a free vacation. How, how do you develop that level, that, that type of contract, that understanding that between the salesperson and the surgeon, that like this is the right person, there's some expectations? Like, how, how do you do that? You, you, you have to level set. I mean, you have to, you know, you, you have to level set. You have to have enough equal business stature with that surgeon to say, listen, I don't want to, you know, I would love to have you at this lab, but let me tell you what I need and what our company needs. And so these would be the expectations, you know, coming out of the lab. I need what are some, ex what are some examples of that? Like if you had two or three for the salesperson listening, like yeah, what are those expectations? So at, at a minimum for me, it would be that, um, that, Hey, if you believe that you can get behind the technology after going to the lab, I would expect you to tie me into, um, the business side of the of the deal, right? The financial side, so we can start to put your clinical expertise in line with the financial expectations of the hospital, so that we can find out, you know, who owns that, uh, who has the budget for this, where does the money come from, how do we do our business case? Then, oh, and, and only then, in my mind, can you start to establish a timeline on a deal. If, mm. if they can't commit to that and you can't, and this is a big thing for me, if you can't transfer that ownership, then I'm not putting them on a plane. Got it. Yeah. And it makes, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And again, like, you know, I think there's, there's definitely, there's, there's capital salespeople who are, who might be struggling with territory. And so sometimes it feels so good to, you know, find a surgeon where like, Finally, after a month or two, like I can get this down to a lab, but I feel like it takes a lot of discipline to just be like, you know what? I, re I know, I know that my pipeline's small. I really been trying to get a win. This is not the right person. Cause I feel like it does more damage. It might feel good in the moment, but it's going to do more damage in the, in the, in that quarter's deal rip. When you have to explain how you, you convince yourself that this surgeon who's clearly not a fit, they did not meet the criteria was justified in, in flying them down. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, so, so, so often I see where, you know, you've got talented, talented, you know, salespeople, but they're in a, uh, they come into a space where the sales cycle, like capital sales is, is long and they feel like they shouldn't, they, they have to, okay, they're coming to the meeting to, you know, discuss their deals and do the deal review and the deal reps and, and you know, they feel bad about it when they think they have to have numbers. But, um, you know, I've had ex-surgeons go 
to a lab. Well, congratulations, you spent, you know, a hundred grand of the company's money and we can't forecast a deal out of it, right? That's a, what people have to understand. It's okay. It's up to me, it's up to leadership and management to take that individual. We hired them, they're talented, coach them into a position where they start to identify and get more acute in, you know, recognizing, transferring that ownership and getting a commitment. Listen, we all, it's tough. We all miss a few, but if you can't transfer that ownership early on, it's going to be a long road for you in capital. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I want to move on to another, to another segment of the process, but I, this is kind of splitting hairs, but I, I have to ask, cause I know there's a lot of like, the one thing I can tell you, Ken, is that for my audience, they love the tactical stuff. They just absolutely love it. So I know we're trying to keep it high level, but I do have to split a little hair here. I'm a capital sales rep, you know, selling, selling, uh, you know, really expensive technology, done everything, found the hospital, right? And let's say I really struck, you know, struck, struck a, a good deal where I got the chair of the department. Let's say it's orthopedics. So I got the chair of orthopedic surgery who, who has some interest in technology. He or she meets all the criteria. Okay. I'm going to fly them out for a lab. Is it better? And again, I know this is, uh, there's, it's different scenarios, but just, you know, you know, play with, play along with this one. Do I focus on getting this chair of surgery out and having a very good experience engaging that and then going to, let's say, maybe get their partner involved, maybe some, some of the fellows. Or do I try and do it all at once and, and have that same chair come out on the flight with people who are key to that process? Let's say a couple of fellows and, and one of the uh, other attendings. Do I try and do it all in one lab or should I try and separate it and move along? Because again, sometimes you don't know when you're going to get that opportunity again. The other side is that if you add more variables to that lab, it makes it more complicated. I mean, I'm wondering how, how you would handle a situation like that. That's an easy one for me, Omar. I mean, the fewer meetings, the better, first, number one. Mm. The fewer meetings, the better. So if I could get the, the right audience, which is what you're describing, so you've got your chair of surgery. If I can get the chair of surgery to say, um, to understand and know from our, our conversations that I'm going to have to get my partners on board, you know, or I'm going to have to get X number of other people on board, and then you've got the financial piece of it. Can we get the, um, you know, the, the people with the purse strings on the trip as well? That makes for a fantastic environment. So you encourage, you know, whoever's managing the budget, even if they're not clinical, if they can be on the trip and be there to be part of that. Uh, I do. Yep. Got it. Got one, it. One meeting as opposed to maybe four different meetings and potentially three different flights for different people. And and to connect the dots, get them all in the same place. That's a good point. And you know, just that that one decision alone is going to just massively accelerate sales velocity, and, and more importantly, shorten the sales timeline. Because even if it's two separate meetings, you know, following up, scheduling another lab, it just it's it's a it's a lot. What question can if you're again, if we role play, and I'm the chair of surgery, and you're talking to me, what question do you ask me? that will illuminate who should be in that lab? It's just that question. You know, Dr. Dr. Khatib, who do you think we need to involve? Because here's what we're looking at. We've got the clinical component of it, and you get behind that. Who should we involve 
in addition to you clinically and who should we involve, you know, from a, a budgetary or a, a business case standpoint? And can we get that group together so that you guys can come to a decision? Got it. And if I love can, how you we can understand what that decision process is and how you get to a decision. And I love how you framed it, Ken. That's what I was, uh, I was thinking. So again, I did a good job paying attention to what you got, what you and sales did like back, back in the day. I, I figured you would do an open-ended question and I want to highlight this for the audience. Ken didn't say what other surgeons should be involved. You said who should, who clinically should be there and who financially from a budget standpoint, because at that point, you know, the surgeon might say, Oh, uh, the PA, like my PA that, that works for me, he or she is like really important. I want to make sure that they're there. Because if you say surgeons, it's kind of like you're biasing them to just start thinking about other surgeons versus being a real capital sales rep means thinking at a higher level, like who's actually going to be important to make this deal move forward, right? Because I, I think the, the, the mistake is assuming that the person you're talking to is going to be thinking about this stuff and, and they're not because that's, that's not their job, right? Yeah, and, and let me, this isn't splitting hairs. This is maybe a, a life lesson for the listeners out there is that if you, whenever you talk to one person and that person says, I make the decision, I can get this done, huge red flag. That really? Is why is that? Oh, why, oh, that's a, why is that? Because what I found typically is, um, you know, with all due respect, the physicians themselves and the surgeons themselves, I've told you this before, Omar, they don't buy the pencils on their desk. Yes. <laughs> it's a whole nother thing. So what he's really saying is, oh, don't worry about it. I, got, I can get this done. He's saying he can get the clinical part done. That's, that is, that's a good need, point. Yeah. You still need to dig in. That's a good point. Yeah, and I think... You know, the, the one thing I've noticed, like, again, I've, I've watched you on, on sales calls and everything and managing the process. I think the best salespeople, aside from being aggressively curious, because they keep digging to get more information to understand things, are just very disciplined. You know, I think capital sales, more than anything, really tests your ability to be disciplined about not getting excited and just really objectively looking at, at, at things at all angles. I think one person, if I can give a shout out to them, that... I think was a great uh, student of yours and Chris Sells who exemplifies this is, is Sean Stewart. It's one thing I always, I always noticed about him. No question about, yeah, Sean Stewart's a yeah, um, you know, great student of the game. And, and, you know, I still am a student of the game. I'm learning things now with, you know, all the different uh, social media avenues you have, I'm, you know, listen to your program, Omar. There's a changing, you know, uh, Tide, if you will, of things that take place and, and the information you have available to you that, you know, um, that every person needs to understand they need to evolve with that, you know, scenario and technology. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, next, my next question for you, this is a, another really important one. And I love this because I, I did a lot of research, Ken, to try and find some capital sales content. It just non-existent. So, Let's say we, we do that lab. You got the chair of surgery over the hills. Like this, this tech, I could see the future. This technology is going to change, change the way we do this one procedure. The people who are there, let's say it's the PA, maybe a couple of those, they're all, everybody's on board clinically, right? 
Um, at that point, what happens next and how important is the coaching process, right? Because there used to be a time where surgeon loves it, team loves it, great. They just go back, say, hey, we're buying this and it's done. Doesn't happen anymore. What, what, what's the sequencing that happens after the lab is done? You've got your clinical champion, you got some momentum. What's the sequencing that has to happen after that? Yeah, so great point. So you, you get back and, you know, clinically, so at that point, clinically, they're sold, right? And they say, okay, yeah, great. We love this. We're going to buy it. Well, you got a problem, Omar. And that, and that problem is what's the timeline? What's our timeline? Mm. Well, they don't know because they typically don't go through the purchasing aspect. They, they don't buy the pencils on their desk. That's it. So now you got to go through another step of transfer of ownership and you've got to coach that team that listen you guys are the clinical experts i happen to be a business expert in the market and in the space we're dealing with let's all get the decision makers in a room and let's get on the same page and hey you know what at the end of the day if, if the timing is not right or we can establish a timeline that's fantastic but we have to do that step Here's the thing I would say is um, people always in capital sales, you know, how can we, how can we change the velocity, speed up the velocity of the business? Well, guess what? If you, if you can't establish a timeline, how can you shorten a timeline? Uh, that's a very, that's a really good point. That yeah. is a very, very good point. And, you know, again, like, we're we're gonna save somebody's career uh, because of this because of this episode because I feel like that's it's funny I never I didn't even think this a lot of the deal rips that I can think about that went absolutely sideways what you know if it wasn't about like how Baden is the surgeon or the clinical champion it was always about what's the timeline and the and the 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 the, the capital sales manager had not even not even lacked an answer they did not know how to explain it. They think they know the timeline, right? Remember, at, in our you know beginning conversation, it's not what you think; it's what you know, and what you can get agreement on. And and sometimes those things change. But if you get your if you're coaching your clinical champions to marry up with the um, the business leaders in the business case, then you've got a chance at establishing a timeline, coaching that group to move together toward a product. Think about it this way. Selling an instrument, it happens every day, right? Selling a piece of capital doesn't happen every day at any mm. hospital, right? So you've got a long sales cycle. Since it doesn't happen every single day, that's where you, in my opinion, you have to be more on top of your game to think about, um, hey, the value that I can bring is I can tell them and share my experience on how other people have gotten this project across the finish line, right? What questions to ask internally? Who needs to influence the deal? And so you, you add value. It's not selling your product, right? You're, you're, you kind of turn into sort of a, a clinical salesperson slash consultant slash um, advisor. Right. And, you know, that was one thing that I remember from the Mazor days, which is 
you know, even for me, when I started as a clinical sales rep, we're always told that we had to establish ourselves in such a way that when we walked in the hospital, we weren't just a rep that the hospital looks and said, Oh, that that's our account executive for our robotics program. And so we, you know, we had to learn not only the clinical side, we had to learn marketing. We had to, you know, so many different aspects of it, you know, um, what's that? That's selling value. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, on, on the timeline side, when you say like really establishing the timeline, is it as simple as just asking them when do they, when, what's their budget cycle and when are those decisions usually made? Or is there something a little bit deeper there that needs to be uncovered? I go a little bit more direct. I think, I mean, you know, every, every hospital's on a budget cycle, whether it's a fiscal year, or, you know, their budgets, you know, ends in July, um, you know, they have money out there. And so, you know, if you've, if you've done a good job of selling your value, there's enough clinical, um, you know, persuasion behind what you're doing, if you will. And um, you've done all that piece of the selling and now it's just coming down uh, to the, the business part of it. You know, if in an ideal world, when would you like to start the program? Is a great question to ask, right? Got it. Got it. Then you're going to get an answer either of, well, our budget, you know, is cycle is here and I'm going to put it in the budget, you know, for next. And, and you know what? That's fine because you're going to step, at least you know where you stand, right? And you can work to shorting, shorten, you know, that through kind of tells me I got to sell a little bit more value to shorten this timeline and make them see both the clinical and economic aspects of the deal to, uh, to get it done sooner. Okay. In the, in the event um, that, again, you've sold enough value, they're, they're, they're bought in, everything's there, but your timeline is, is, is off. Let's say you're, you're off cycle. They just, you know, they're, you know, those kind of decisions that had been made already. As a capital sales rep, what do you do with a deal like that? Do you, do you put it on the shelf for the, for the quarter and kind of nurture it along and go focus on other things? I mean, what... That, that's the other thing that happens that's kind of sort of out of your control. What do you do with stuff like that? The, the biggest mistake I see in capital sales is they work on the wrong deal and they work on it too long. Um, if you have to understand the company that you represent has a business cycle as well, right? We have to try to match those up, match those up so we can accurately forecast the business on our side so that we can allocate the resources on our side to support the customer. If the timing's not right on your side, Mr. or Ms. Customer, then let's revisit because this is not for everybody and I get it, it might be a timing issue. You have limited time and resources, I would probably move on to the next deal. I call it getting a divorce. You have to really be critical of working on deals that never close. Mm. Or don't, don't what? have a chance to close. In your experience, I mean, again, you've been at so many different companies selling capital. You've managed so many different teams. What causes a capital sales person to not do that and end up working on a deal longer than they should? You know, like what, what, what do you, what's, what's the most common theme that you usually see? It's a, it's a weak pipeline. It's a weak pipeline. Got it. Well, let me put so, it another way. 
I call huh. it weak. It's not a, um, it's a thin pipeline. Mm. So Do you think that coach, as a leader, I would try to work with them to build their, their pipeline depth that was much stronger so that they weren't putting, you know, too many eggs in one basket in a quarter. Mm. So at the end of the day, it's a numbers game, right? Because there's somebody out there that, that wants to, to buy your value and buy your, your program and buy your product um, and buy it on your timeline or the company's timeline. We just need to go find them. Do you feel like, um, mo you know, I think the majority in my, in my like anecdotal humble experience, the majority of salespeople, not just capital sales, majority of salespeople love focusing on the, you know, aside from the demo, but the, like the closing aspect of it. Right. But if you cannot grow pipeline, do it doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. Right. Do you feel like when some, when, when a salesperson is under, you know, a lot of stress, let's say, you know, they, they get a deal that may not be the right deal. It's not going to close. Do you feel like they just kind of hold on to that because of some underlying fear or inadequacy of going out and trying to grow pipeline? Like, I'm always trying to figure out what makes a salesperson hang on to a deal where it's like everybody, in, and we've been in those rooms where it's a deal where everybody in the room knows this deal is going nowhere except the person who's up presenting it. Why does that happen? Um, because they... Uh, I'm going to use the term. They forgot to be paranoid. They, mm. you know, let's let's start there. I mean, you know, if you really take a look in the mirror and you really take a look at that deal, um, it's got issues. And if you can't uncover those issues in the next week or ten days, then you know you need to move on. And if you move on from that deal and you only have three behind it, I mean, that's a different issue entirely, right? Got it. So, you know, just to kind of, and there's, there's some, there's some management questions I, I have for you, but I want to, I want to finish a key point, a few key points on the, on this process. And again, like just to remind the audience, like Ken, Ken's covering at a very high level, um, you know, this, this process there, there are just, you know, there's a tremendous amount of details just going into each one of these topics, but Ken, you know, in terms of, you mentioned certain criteria that to, to, to fig to, to check off or figure out whether you leave a deal behind or not. If you had like a top three or top five things that if this happens, if this, then that for the coding, for the people in, in the programming side, if this, then that, what are those criteria in turn for you to say, Hey, this, you need, this is a, this deal's not going anywhere. What, 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 what are the, what are the things that come to mind? Probably the top three and, you know, for me is, is going back and we used to talk about this a lot um, is the three M's method, money, and motivation. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about motivation first, right? So we have the motivation. We've got the clinical champion. Hey, you know what? We've even got some um, administrative, you know, support in the deal. So we have, we have motivation and then, okay. If you have motivation, then um, um, what's the method, what's the process to, to get that done, and then where's the money going to come from? And you could probably add the, the, it's not an M, but, you know, and when is it going to happen? So if you think in those terms, to me at a high level, 
that's not really high level. I mean, you, you need those three M's to be working on a deal. If you're missing one, try to get it. If you don't, move on. No, I, compl I, I, I completely agree because technically you can't move the deal forward without those, without you can't, you have to have all three of those things, right? Agreed. Yep. You know, and it's funny, you know, it's like, again, like, uh, you map things back, like even me and my current sales process, you know, from my, um, uh, from my sales course, you know, it's an expensive course, but it is technically a B2C or business to consumer product for people to get in the course. They talk to me and in my sales process, you know, Somebody could be very, very motivated. It could be the right time. But if they don't have the budget for it, it's just like, I have to move on. It's a waste of my time to continue talking to them. You know, yeah. I think it's the same thing with this capital process, which is like, you can't, you can't have two out of three. Like, it's just, the deal's just not going to happen. And, and a lot of times when people say, well, you know, we just don't have the money for it. We don't have um, the budget for it. We can't do it. You know, you got to really kind of take a step back and say, okay, is this an ideal customer for me? Um, because guess what? They didn't close their doors. They still spend money ah. every single day. They don't you, have money for you. Oh, you you talk yeah, it's, you you you're you're way ahead of me on this. So let's let's talk about that because number one excuse I I, I hear, um, especially like this year, you know, I talked to I've talked I've spoken to over a hundred salespeople just in my own own calls, is oh the hospital just doesn't have budget. Hospital doesn't have money. Yet Last year in 2021, if you looked at the top 10 hospital systems, all their net incomes went up. Everybody's went up. And and I don't know about you, Ken. Again, your your career is a, you've had a much longer career than me. I don't remember any hospital ever saying, "Yeah, you know, we got money for that." Times could be rolling. The hospital always is. It never has money or budget. Would you agree with that? Hundred percent. Yeah, so the, 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 that's, you know, we don't have money for that. It's another, it's a different problem. Either you go to your clinical champion and say, listen, this is what I'm told. Um, hey, technology's not for everybody. Let me know, I guess, when you guys have some money because there's been a disconnect somewhere. And you'll be amazed at what sometimes walking away from a deal does to speed the deal up. Really? Why, why is that? Why, why, why is walking away such a, such a po powerful point of leverage? You get to the truth. If mm. you get pushback on it, you should walk away. And if they get fired up about it, then you've turned them into an evangelist as opposed to you pushing a rock. Now you have a chance to get pulled through a deal. Got it. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. All right, another 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 point of the of the process. A couple other areas I want to cover, and then I want to uh, sort of wrap wrap things up. Um, VAC committee, and for those listening, value analysis committee. Th this is the place where a lot of deals just they often just go to die, right? What are the mistakes that you've seen made when again you got all the right pieces, you have the momentum, but a salesperson comes back to report and be like, yeah. VAC committee shot it down. We're not getting the deal. What What are the most common mistakes that happen? So VAC committee shot it down. I mean, you know, first, if you're coming back and reporting that, then, you know, we should, we should have proactively probably preempted that. So we have to understand. Remember earlier I talked about every, they don't buy a piece of capital every day. So every, every time they buy a piece of capital, it's going to be different. 
So maybe, you know, this IDN does it one way, this one does it another. If we've been proactive, so I'm going to go there first. Then you can identify who is on that VAT committee, first off. You can develop some personas around those people on the VAT committee. I can't keep, you know, no, no capital sales rep is going to be able to, you know, circumvent the process of going through a VAT committee very often. It can be done, but, you know, today it's going to be tough. But understanding that and the timing of that and who's on that and how you can educate that VAT committee and how you can, you know, you don't just leave it in the VAT committee's hand. You've got to, you've got to arm your, your clinical champions and the influencers that go to that VAT committee to give them the best information possible. Because like we all know right now, I mean, 60% before you get called into a VAT committee situation, they've done a ton of research on your product. And whether you're get, presenting a, a return on investment analysis or you're presenting to a VAT committee, I want to be involved in that process. So I think probably the most important thing is be involved in that process in the VAT committee process. Just don't come back and say, oh, VAT committee shot it down. Oh, really? Why? Right. You know? This goes back to your advice about always being paranoid. And I think, you know, the best salespeople aside from being paranoid, just aggressively curious, like finding out, okay, who's on the VAC committee, you know, for me, um, you know, and a lot of, a lot of my success came because of the mentorship and coaching I got from you and sales and people at Missouri. You know, when I was at Petro and I had to deal with VAC committees, you know, aside from the, the obvious question of like, well, who's on it? You know, I would talk to the physician or even somebody in purchasing, you know, some oftentimes the best, a lot of great source of information is a junior person in purchasing or operations that nobody talks to. And they'll just start spilling their guts out to you about all kinds of information. I would, I would often ask like, Hey, on this committee, who, who really has the, the pull on this committee? And they'll say like, Oh yeah, it's this person. It's a CFO. Oh, it's actually this, uh, this physician, even though it's an, he, this this guy or gal's an inter this is a real story, by the way, on a VAC committee, there was a, there was a, a cardiologist and the operations person told me, they're like, I, when I asked this question, like, yeah, actually I know that there's a CEO, the so-and-so this person, but this cardiologist, she's got a lot of pull. Like she, she's killed deals before. I was like, great. It's all I needed here. You know, how, how important do you think it is like for a salesperson to kind of like, you know, map this out. And you said in terms of being like really involved in the process, what, it, what does that mean? It's pen to paper for me. I mean, I've, you know, even again, now with all the information that, that, you know, you have, you can, you can figure out, uh, you know, who do they look at as their peer group? Does that IDN have a VAT committee? Um, are we, are they a customer of ours? I mean, I'm just getting, throwing some examples out, right? Yeah, yeah, please. A, yeah. Could they influence, um, the person that I need to influence on the, or, or get to on the VAT committee or, or what have you. VAT committees aren't going to go away, but let me tell you this, you know, you have to think about what, you know, if, if and Omar, I'll ask you this, and you may have the right answer, you may not, but I, I've done a lot of reading on it. What's the number one mind share of hospitals right now, the hospital CEO and, or an IDN CEO in their world? Would you, there's, I'm not to put you on the spot. 
No, 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 no. I'll, that, that, that's, that's the beauty about the show. That's why I don't edit these episodes. Um, your question is, what is the number one like mind share for, for a hospital CEO today? The biggest concern, why are they losing sleep right now? Um, I, I would say, uh, I would say two, two things. And I'm going to say that the, mo the number one is going to be the most important thing. Number one is dry, driving, driving revenue and patients to their hospital. And number two, what costs are bleeding them out that they're unaware of? Which you got number two, and I'm going to go direct to that and 100% agree. They're worried about, um, okay, how do we drive revenue into our door because we have a very high fixed cost environment. But then right. once they get in through the door, I don't have enough labor right now to take care of it. And so you talk about bleeding costs. I mean, that's the biggest, the biggest pain point right now, I think for CEOs is, is trying to um, alleviate the, uh, the staff shortage issue. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny when I think about it, Ken, like you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of consolidation happening in the market with hospitals. I mean, I know about you, I can't remember the last time I saw like a true standalone hospital. Right. Um, but I think as a result of that, you know, there's only so much top line revenue you can drive. If let's say you're, you're owned by uh, an IDM, some hospital system, it's not like you can go and poach business and patients from a, a catchment area that that's owned by another, by, by the same hospital system, but it's like a different hospital. So I think what you're left with is like, okay, you can only grow revenue so much. So then the next thing is like, well, the other way, the other way I can drive, I can, you can grow a profit, just start cutting, cutting your costs. What, what are we spending money on that we don't need to be spending money on? You know? Yeah. The environment's tough. Um, you know, and for your audience out there, I mean, capital sales is, you know, you, you've got to have thick skin. Uh, there's no question about it. But I think if you, if you truly want to become a, become a student of the game and you really think in a paranoid fashion and every day you strive to, you know, um, to think how to get better, but you know, as important to me is when you miss something, you recognize that and you always go back on something that you thought was going to close within a time frame. And you know, Omar, we used to do this. We did a post-mortem on many of those scenarios so that we learned that we didn't repeat those mistakes or, or we changed our uh, approach, you know, down the road and in the future. This today, Omar, I know you have to wrap up. It, it's a big topic, but we can do this for, for hours. And I know, yeah, I got a little bit high level, but, you know, I welcome anybody that, you know, wanted to get more granular, reach out to Omar, uh, you know, and be happy to, I'm sure you'd be happy to facilitate that. Oh, definitely. I think we're, we definitely need to do a live show. So we, we, that's going to be in the, in the, in the, uh, in the cards for sure. Um, just to kind of, you know, sort of wrap up, Ken, if, if you don't mind, I want to be mindful of your time. I have some questions specifically on, on sales, like sales leadership and management, and then a few like rapid fire questions. Are you okay to cut, to do those with me? Sure. Do okay. It. So on the, on the, you know, on the sales management side, again, like, I think, you know, you can have a very disciplined, uh, sale, uh, sales, salesperson, but if management, uh, doesn't engineer the environment the right way, you're going to get all kinds of bad behavior, right? What, what are some common mistakes you see, um, a VP of sales 
do. Because, you know, in reality, I mean, you know, CEO can influence these things and everything, but really the, the tone is set by the VP of sales or I guess more often than not these days, we see a lot of chief commercial officers. What's, what's, a, what's a mistake that, uh, that you see a sales leader often make? Like if you had to, you know, put it to like two or three key things. Are we talking startup disruptive? What do we? Oh, that's a great, yeah, great question. Uh, I would say, I would say startup and disruptive. I don't know about you, but like, I have no, I have no idea how like a massive company like Medtronic works. I, no offense to anybody there, but like, you know, I'm a startup guy. So like these, these, the, yeah. I couldn't answer so new, from their perspective or strategic, uh, I call them strategic, you know, perspective, but yeah, I think, I think it's a chain reaction that occurs. I think that, you know, maybe, uh, funding occurs, uh, money comes in the door that the commercial team is hired, but they're hired probably too late. And so there's no real thought out, um, commercial strategy that is intertwined with getting FDA approval. That puts pressure on the VP of sales. So now the VP of sales is, um, is, you know, under enormous pressure to deliver, um, a result that is unrealistic. So I would say unrealistic expectations is probably one of the things that, that can, you know, kill a startup in a, in a startup commercial team. Yeah. And I think. And I'm wondering what you're, you know, cause I've, so I'll, I'll be frank, you know, I've, I've, I've sold and everything. I've never been a, a sales director or VP. So I might be speaking out, out of line here, but I feel that if you don't objectively set those expectations as a sales leader, you're not just hurting yourself for that quarter, but like the mindset and psychology of a sales team can take a toll. And I think if you don't do that the right way, you, you'll, you'll, it's very destructive. You know, you, you can't, you can't commercially, you can't take your team from a sales manager and I found in, in this world. First off, you want to think that you can hire people that you don't have to set an alarm for and you don't have to, you know, get them out of bed every day. That's so let's take that out of the equation. But at the end of the day, you can't beat uh, your sales team into submission to a quota. You've got to mm. take, how do we, how do we really build this thing so that it's sustainable? Um, and how do we build a runway so that, you know, we have enough runway and you, and you do that, you know, in many different ways, but one of them is, you know, through good sales leadership and management. So I've, I've been on both sides of the table. Um, myself, I've been, you know, under the gun and, uh, and it's not fun. I would rather build something sustainable and go to work for somebody that, that saw that and I've been fortunate enough, you've been fortunate enough, you know, to have been around a lot of people. Um, you know, Chris Sells, uh, my case, uh, you know, Chad Zarin, Chris Prentice, um, you know, people that, you know, at one time were even my peers that, you know, that went up through the ranks, which is a, which is a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. And can you, I, I want to just like, uh, uh, circle back to it. You said something very interesting, which is you can't beat your sales team into submission to hit, hit quota. Why is that? You, you, I mean, think about, it. uh, what do you get out of a stick? You, you know, there's, 
the stick is the stick. I mean, it, you, there's nothing to be gained by that. I mean, you, you need, trust me, you need both, you know, depending on the situation. But if you're situational about it, that's a different thing. But just in general terms, you have to you have to go sustainable. You have to put the carrot out there. And, and, and so many times I see, um, if you want, I've always said this, if you, it comes down to a comp plan too, by the way. I mean, that always drives uh, behaviors, right? It comes down to a comp okay. plan. If, you, if you're paying peanuts, you're going to get monkeys. So, so, so let's, 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 I know, again, I, I don't want to go, I don't want to, I don't want to go off on, on too much of a tangent, but like, I feel like this is really important. Nobody talks about comp plans and um, especially in today's environment, you know, I can't tell you the number of salespeople I've talked to who their comp plans getting messed with. They're, they're having to work harder, cover larger territories, make less money. What's your advice to a sales leader when it comes to designing a comp plan? Like, you know, I know that's, I know it's so situational. It depends on the company technology, so many different things, but there has to be some, some, you know, guiding principles that you use when it comes to the comp plan. How, how do you usually think about it for capital sales? No, great question. I think, I think it depends. First, you have to say, okay, you pointed out, let's, if you took budget out of the equation, if you took um, uh, different variables, you took product value out of the equation, you know, all those things, you have to look around, you have to say, okay, do I want A players? Do I want B players? Um, uh, can I only afford C players? And you have to start there. If you want A players and you want to move those people out of, you know, their current roles where they're making, you know, um, really nice compensation to, to help you out, then you have to pay for them. And so you have to figure out, you have to bake that into your, um, to your gross margins and your, you know, in your, uh, your cost of goods and, you know, and everything else and try to, try to, you know, work that out. But it's, uh, it is not Omar uncommon that, and I'll tell you this, and I've seen this happen. I've had it happen to me that people complain that, okay, they start out with a big geography. They make a, a, a lot of money. They have a great first one or two years. Then their geography gets cut. And you hear the, the, the wailing and the gnashing of the teeth because their territory got cut. And then all of a sudden you realize that, hey, you know what? I did better with my cutting territory or as good than I did when I had the big geography, right? So you begin to focus. And you know what that's called at the end of the day? It's called scaling the business and scaling the field. And that's that's what happens. But but to your point, in designing a comp plan, there's a lot of variables. But I think it comes down to, you know, what what profile of talent do we want to hire? Got it. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. It, it, it really does. I got a few more questions for you and then, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Definitely. I want to have you back and we'll definitely, um, we'll definitely do a live, live version of this. So people can ask questions live, which I think would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, for, for myself, at least when I left Mazor, um, I was kind of, you know, uh, hit in the face with like a cold bucket of water when I realized that not every company was going to be at the caliber of Mazor both on the technology side and also in terms of the people and the management. Uh, what's your advice to capital pe capital salespeople when it comes to evaluating their next, uh, their next opportunity, right? Cause there's, I feel like there's a certain criteria of due diligence you have to do to make sure that you're going to the right place and you're going to be successful. 
what, what's that due, due diligence look like for you? And, you know, what, what advice can you impart? So, yeah, great question. I think for me, um, in thinking about that, I would, I would say this, it goes back to the paranoia, um, thing again, and I hate to keep using that word, but I would say for me, it's like, you have to go into a situation like that, that the, the grass isn't always greener. It's just different grass. Does that make sense? And so if you kind of take that mindset into doing your due diligence, you want to, you're, you're trying to discover, is this the same grass or is it different grass? Um, because everything you go into is going to have a little hair on it. Nothing is perfect when you, you know, you show up and, you know, I haven't come across anything yet in my career that just really flies off the shelf. Right. Yeah. Especially disruptive. So, yeah. I, I, I completely agree. That's why they call it driving adoption and not, uh, like sit back and wait for adoption to happen. You have to drive it. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, even in Missouri, it was, it was without clinical evidence. It was very clearly obvious, especially when you do the lab, this is the right way to do spinal fusions, but there's no such thing as, oh, it's just going to sell itself. It just doesn't, doesn't exist. Apple's got the bet. This iPhone is like one of the best products ever, ever made in history. Apple still buys out billboards. They're still driving ads. They're still doing marketing, you know? That's right. So, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Ken, you know, it's been, it's, this has been fantastic. And I want to kind of, uh, give you sort of like the last word, but in wrapping up, um, what's your, you know, I guess send off final piece of advice for, for all the capital salespeople who are listening and potential capital salespeople. Yeah, I would say, um, it's like anything. I mean, you know, if you, um, are passionate about the capital component and, and guess what, you need to be passionate about the utilization as well and, and get involved in that. So just a sidebar note for that. Um, then it can be very rewarding. And it teaches you a lot that some of which is going to reinforce what you, what your parents have probably raised you to believe what you read on LinkedIn and people believe it reinforces that and validates that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, my advice or my, my words of wisdom would be this. If it was easy, they wouldn't need us. So think about that. I love it. I can think of a better way to, to, to end it. So Ken, thank you so much for taking some time and hanging out with us. Definitely let's figure out when we can do a live stream. So the audience that's listening, thank you so much for, for joining us. Been another great episode of the state of MedTech. If you're interested in catching up with Ken, I'm going to drop his LinkedIn uh, profile below in the show notes. So hit him up on LinkedIn at Ken Husted. And my name is Omar Khatib, your host and head of state. This has been another great episode. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.